Hello, hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you are tuning in. It's good to have you. Today we're doing another podcast episode. I'm your host, Alec. And uh, once again, we're highlighting and talking to some of the incredible speakers that we will have talking at our conferences coming up in just a few weeks. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Ben Terrett and Tom Lusmore. Ben is the CEO at Public Digital and Tom is a partner at Public Digital. And what they do is help organizations basically embrace the internet, but <laughs> I'm assuming a lot of their clients are, you know, governments and agencies. Look at, they'll tell us a little bit more about that, but we're really excited to talk with them because you might not know this, but if you've heard of the gov.uk design system or have ever used a government website anywhere, you probably have uh, interacted with a legacy of some of their work. They're joining us to speak to us a little bit at DesignConf coming up about exactly that that work and what everyone's kind of not not taking the right point away from their work at gov.uk. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, Tom and Ben, thank you for joining me. Hi, Alec. Great to be here. Yeah, likewise. Looking forward to it. I know that was a bit of a long and windy intro, but you guys have done a lot of stuff. <laughs> and so there's a lot to get into. I'd love, if you don't mind, to talk a bit about how you got into you know, digital services and government, you know, I know the big focus of one of the really special things you, you guys both worked on was the design system at gov.uk. But maybe what, what happened kind of before that? Like, how did we get to a position where we could start working on that? Ben, maybe we can start with you. I was just going to say you should start with Tom. Um, <laughs> I think Tom should give a two minute history of how gov.uk came about. And then perhaps I can say how Tom persuaded me to join the team and then we could go from there. All right, Tom, it's all on you. Thanks, Ben. So for many years, the UK government had been getting digital services wrong, been spending billions on large consultancies, literally billions. And around 2010, it started to ask some different people for answers, of which I was fortunate enough to be one. There was a real ambition as a coalition government, so party, more than one party involved in government, which allowed more flexibility. And so they wanted to really try a different way. Let's try and put design user centricity at the heart of redesigning some government services. And the obvious place to start from my perspective was you've got two and a half thousand websites. In fact, you can't even count them. There are so many. They only have one thing in common. That's all different. <laughs> Why don't we just have one government website that's really simple, really clear, really fast, and build that website in a kind of internet era way, user-centered, iterative, incremental. So we built an alpha version of that in three months for not very much money, which kind of blew everybody's mind. We made that public, that alpha version. That kind of blew people's minds. That built momentum. And that's when I started reeling Ben in because we needed some proper grown-up designers. So Ben, over to you. <laughs> Tom, um... can, can, I, can I just interrupt for a second? Do you know what the look on the face of the those agencies, the, the people running those agencies when they saw what you guys had made and how much you made it for? Like, did you manage to get any pictures of the people running those those organizations? Because I bet that would that would have been something. As someone said to me, I think you've cost a lot of salespeople their swimming pools, <laughs> which kind of gives a sense of the scale. I mean, the government has spent ten billion pounds on a failed technology modernization of the National Health Service. I mean, literally written nearly all of it off. So wow. we were dealt with it. We were actually dealt quite a good hand in terms of, you know, there had been a car crash and a very, very different approach, kind of internet era approach, a sort of user-centered approach. We were kind of embraced with open arms, to be honest. That's amazing. All right, Ben, where do you come into the story? Well, Tom had started on this journey and approached me saying, do you know someone who could redesign DirectGov? Um, w would you like to come and help redesign DirectGov? At the time, I was the 
design director at Wyden Kennedy, which is an ad agency that um, some of the listeners to this will have heard of. It's a very fun, kind of exciting job. And redesigning DirectGov is not a fun, exciting job, really. <laughs> and so I said, Ob- obviously not. I don't want to do that. And I kind of recommended people to Tom. And after a couple of months of sort of back and forth, Tom kept saying, no, none of these people are right. And we, we went for coffee and I, I said, something's wrong because these people that I'm sending you, you know, really good designers. And Tom said, no, they're not right. And when we got talking in more broader terms, it wasn't the redesign of kind of one website or a couple of websites. It was this whole transformation, this almost systemic rethink of how government does technology and therefore how it designs things around the user. That hadn't sort of, I hadn't really clocked that in the first conversation. So I, I said, oh, okay, that's a completely different brief. What you need is somebody that thinks about this almost in the way that designers of the past thought about the tube map in Britain or the road signs and the system behind that. You know, there's effectively a design system behind both of those things. You need someone that thinks about government websites like that. Find that person, hire them. And Tom kind of said, okay, nobody thinks about it like that or nobody talks about it like that apart from you. And I sort of said, I've talked myself into the job, haven't I? He said, you haven't bit, really. <laughs> so um, so uh, there we go. We sort of talked ourselves into it. And so it took a while, but we got it. And then it was a wonderful journey from then on. I think I think that's first of all that's a hilarious story, um, and uh, I hope there's been some pints of good beer that have been exchanged as a result uh, between the two of you. One thing I, I think this is a really good segue because it's interesting that you mentioned the the tube map, and you know I think it feels sometimes like design systems were invented like four years ago, right? But it's actually you know these things have existed for a long time. You know, like you said, whether it's the road network or how we navigate a subway or all sorts of different places. Do you have a sense of like why we feel like this is a brand new thing that's never been done before, even though it kind of has? Yeah, because it's a nice, it's a nice, easy thing to talk about on the internet. You know, it's, it's, an, it's a nice, you know, trendy, bite-sized thing to. It's popular to talk about it. I mean, that's one of the yeah. reasons I think. Yeah, I, I just got a reflection on how long this has been going on. In that, I think about seven or eight months after Ben joined, I clocked him leaving the office in an orange hoodie. And I said, where are you going, Ben? He said, I'm off to see the Royal Garter at Arms to ask permission to use the Queen's crown as the emblem on the website. And I've got to show him how that, how that's going to work in kind of, you know, 50 pixel by 50 pixel icon. And I'm like, literally the Queen's representative who has his, basically his own castle in the city of London. And that man, five days a week, guards the Queen's design system, which is literally the iconography around the crown symbol. Wow. And Ben managed in his orange hoodie to win him over and give us permission to use the crown because that was the icon that gave most trust with us. Uh, I think this is a thing that's been going on for a long time. I, I got to hear the story about pitching the Queen's representative <laughs> to use her crown. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's, um, yeah, it's actually, it's not the crown. It's the kind of coat and arms, the lion and unicorn thing. And in all our user research, which you know we did from pretty much from day one, that was the thing that gave them. There'd been loads and loads of research done into the brand of government and the, why the brand of DirectGov, which was invented separately, was a good thing and people trusted it. But n- none of it was market research rather than user research. Um, mm. So it didn't really didn't really stand up to proper testing. And what we found was that the the Queen symbol was the thing most trusted by users, sort of instantly. Wow. So effectively, because it's the you know the logo of Her Majesty's government, right? So great, we'll use that. But to use that, you have to get uh, like quite a lot of permission. And everyone we spoke to, certainly designs and governments, said they won't let you scale it down because when you scale it down, you lose detail. And if you know one of the feathers falls off the back of the unicorn, you know Scotland falls into the sea or something. I don't know. So you, so you, so you, you can't you can't scale this thing down. So they won't let you use it. So don't even bother. Yeah. And I sort of said, well, has anyone ever asked? I mean, you know, like Tom said, really, these rules 
sort of invented hundreds of years ago. Has anyone ever asked these people? No, 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 they just say no. So we found out who the person was, which is this principal garter king of arms or whatever, who does basically have a sort of castle slash Hogwarts type building in the middle of the centre of London. He's actually the Queen's cousin. And we managed to get a sort of appointments to go and see him. And, and I explained what we were doing and said, you know, so I, what I would like is your permission to be able to scale this thing down to a sort of whatever it is, 50 pixels or, or whatever thing to use as an icon on Twitter and social media and smaller devices for the website. And he, he looked at me and honestly said, what's a pixel? Wow. And I said, okay, 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 let me explain. And when I explained, obviously, you know, imagine a grid kind of 50 by 50. But, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay, I understand. So, you know, he said the certain bits you can't leave out because it has great significance, but we could simplify this and that, and I'm sure we could make it work, Robert. So it was a really great, really productive meeting, and we got full permission. But as we were leaving, I said, and this is a real lesson for everyone, actually, he was really friendly and really quite helpful and said, please, you know, contact me if you need anything else. And I said, you know, everyone said you say no all the time. Everyone said you say no to all these requests. So, you know, what's changed this time? And he just said, no one ever asked me. He said, you're the only person that's ever come and asked me. No one ever asked me. Wow. So people just assume he would say no. No one's actually ever asked. And he said, if people come to see me, I'm very happy to help. That's my job. But actually what happens is nobody asks me and then I see things and they're wrong. And, you know, we have to get quite serious. So there's a lesson there. I'm just trying to picture like my American friends, the concept of going to ask the representative of the queen, if you could use in an orange hoodie, hoodie. (laughs) that's the key bit of information. (laughs) I think that's phenomenal. This is an audio only podcast, but this person is sort of in charge of all the coat of arms in the country, really. So if you get knighted or whatever, he'll create a new one for you and so on. And he leads at the state opening of parliament, I think he leads, he stands just in front of the queen and leads the procession in all the kind of regalia. So you see him a couple of times of the year out and about. And if this was a visual podcast, I, I would send you a, a photo of him in, in full costume and it, it would make this conversation even more bizarre than it already is. That's fantastic. As much as I'd love to dig way deeper into this, I think it's worth us talking a bit about why we're doing this talk at Design Conf this year. Because this was actually one thing that got me extremely excited and the curators of the event really excited about having you. And that was this concept that, so I think a lot of people know that the gov.uk design system has been kind of copied all over the world, right? I think in Canada, we copied it like full scale, lots of other places have. And in talking with you guys, you're like, well, everybody kind of misses the point of the design system. (laughs) Uh, And we were like, do tell, right? So I wonder if you can, if you can talk a little bit about how you feel seeing this thing copied all over the world and then also, you know, having mixed feelings about it because it kind of misses the point, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you can kind of get to the point because when we very first started doing this, we'd actually said we want to public. We, in 2011, we publicly said we want to do a design system. I don't think we called it that. We called it a global experience language. I mean, I'd done something similar at the BBC back in the day. Uh, which had similar kind of affordances organizationally. But when we came to think, okay, what do we actually know about global experience language at this point? It's quite early on. We hadn't really launched gov.uk properly. We had this moment of clarity, which is it's not really, if you give people a kit of parts, they'll use them, but they'll still use them to kind of misunderstand the essence of being user-centered, the essence of, of working intuitively, the kind of point of working in an internet era way. And they'll just build bad things that look slightly nicer. You know, bad service design with a nice sort of coat of paint on almost. So instead of doing that, we really thought hard about how do we get some principles out there that people can really understand that challenge their default ways of thinking about the design of services that are 
have to serve everybody in the UK. And so we published 10 design principles really quite beautifully. I mean, I had nothing to do with it. It was all Ben and his team. But they really landed well. And they're really like memes within the... They were quite influential in changing the language that people inside government used to talk. So you suddenly hear people saying, we need to iterate and then iterate again. That was one of our design principles. You know, we, we have to make things open because that makes things better. That was one of our design principles. And by introducing these concepts, you know, start with the user need, not the government need. Do less was another one. I mean, they're still there on gov.uk. You can go and, go and look at them. But they, it was those changing the way people think about designing services. They were much more important, I think, certainly to begin with, than giving people a kind of design system, which is essentially a kit of parts. I think you still need that. You definitely need that now, but it's not the place to start. You need to start with people's heads, where their heads are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think we realized very early on that we could have done a design system or some type of design language, like Tom said, that was purely visual. And that was probably the assumption of, of certain people, I think. And that would have been wrong because it does just allow you to paper over the cracks. So we wanted, for example, we wanted it to contain real code um, and you to be able to use that code. And we wanted it to be regularly undergo user research. And if people found a better way of doing it, by user research, then change it. You know, it should be it should be kind of a living, breathing thing. That meant it had to be. I mean, that means it's a product, right? And if it's a product, it needs a team, and it has to live, and so on and so on. So we, I think, the first version of it was called Design Patterns, actually, and was was a little bit side of the desk to start with, and was designed to do two things. It was designed to make it easy for people to adopt our, our new ways of, of working and our ways of thinking because the code and stuff was there and you could grab it. And it was also designed that if somebody's, it's designed to stop you going down rabbit holes or going down paths that others have already gone down. You know, if you're just building a simple name and address form or something, well, why bother reinventing that? Here's one that, that people have already done. So that's where it came from. And it got, you know, quick early adoption. It scaled quite quickly. We tied it to a thing called the service standards, which are standards you had to meet before your service could go live. So it had some, it was carrot and stick, really, which was fantastic. And it worked really well. And it, it, like I say, it was a little bit side of the desk. And then it's evolved to have a proper fully funded team, which is fantastic. But I think the problem with, with and, and um, we're not really talking about the GovUK design system here. We're talking about all design systems. The problem with design systems, there's, there's two problems now. One is that if you're not careful, they can become a constraint and they can stop innovation because they work and they're good. And so there's no need to try anything else. And that's not, was never our intention. You, you should be constantly evolving and constantly approving. It both should be tweaked and iterated and someone somewhere should be making bigger bets. Someone somewhere in a, in a small part of the forest should be trying new things just in case. And that doesn't happen with really well-used design systems, I don't think. And then the second bigger problem is I think design systems are incredibly attractive to designers and design teams and too often they start with the design system and rather than starting with you know products and services and things that work and testing it and iterating it and then building a design system afterwards they start with the design system because they think let's get this stuff out and then let's let everyone use it and that will solve all the problems at scale and i I think that's a that's a real problem i I think that's this super interesting and i mean we could go down multiple rabbit holes here, which thankfully we don't have to because you're going to be going down those rabbit holes when you give your talk in just a few weeks. But one thing I'd love to to just pull on for a second, which I think is really fascinating in, in the sense, it seems like inherent to the type of work that we do, but there's this paradox of, of the design system where 
you know, you create this, and I, I, when I say design system, I mean the actual like pieces of it, the components. When you create it, right, it both makes things kind of like easier to to create, but it also boxes you in, in in a sense, right. And so it's it's one of those funny things it seems where as you create structure around something, there's this uh, implicit assumption that that structure is all encompassing and final, yep. and you know, I wonder, and I don't know if you have any insight into this, I wonder if it has ever been explicitly framed that way in any team, right? Like, hey, this is this is it. <laughs> this is final and unchangeable and encompasses everything. Or if it's always just been an implicit thing. Well, I think, Alec, that idea that it's final is very attractive to designers. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a hangover from the print days. Now, many of the designers at this conference won't remember the, the print days or certainly won't have spent most of their career on it. But there's a bunch of habits that designers have that are hangovers from those days. And having the final thing, you know, the final thing you, you can send off or you send to print or you send for approval and it's done is, is an attractive idea. And the internet obviously is not like that. And in fact, the internet is better when it's not like that. So I think there's, there is this kind of almost subconscious you know, desire for it to be finished and signed off, whereas actually the bolder and the braver and the harder but better decision is to let it evolve via user research and constantly keep changing it. Yeah, I think there's something here about self-policing as well, that designers want to do the right thing and they want to support a design system. They want to be part of a, a movement within large organizations, and that's thoroughly to be supported, but not at the cost of people actually thinking about the context that they're working in. I mean, I think of a great example, I won't name names, but, you know, one of the principles on the on the gov.uk service manual is, you know, only ask one question per page, one thing per page. And that's been proven for most, to, if you want to reach, if you want to reach the universal population in the UK, that's, that design pattern is, is the best way to do it rather than having a page with like 50 questions on. However, if you've got people who are civil servants who are running uh, or public servants who are dealing with thousands of phone calls every year. They're expert users, and they would they giving them one thing on per page for their internal systems is a disaster <laughs> because they're more than capable of quickly answering fifty questions on one page. Blah, 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 blah. So again, as an example of the designer not thinking about the context they're working in, not challenging the design system and saying actually there's a gap here. What about internal users, expert users? Let's think about them differently, and and let's tread some new path. There's a new path we need to follow here rather than being restricted to the paths that we know. And I think that people trying to be be good citizens but at the cost of them thinking about the context, uh, that's a real challenge. I've been in other organizations, and the BBC was one, where frankly, people didn't want to follow the rules or whatever, and you tended to have a wild west. So you know, people just deliberately not copying patterns that are well-established. So there is definitely a bit of a balance here, but I, I'm more with Ben, I think. Generally speaking, people are too constrained by them. That's, uh, that's super. Yeah, I mean, what a great illustration of that, in that example right there. Let's leave this conversation on this question for both of you. Uh, and we'll start with you, Ben. What do you hope when people leave this talk, what do you hope that they kind of take away from it or do differently after listening in and hearing the story of the gov.uk design system and the things that I think people get wrong about it? What do you hope their takeaways are? I hope if you're a designer particularly, you go back and you really push yourself out of your comfort zone with regards to design. So you may have spent years working on something and you may think that design is fantastic. And it may be, and it is fantastic, but you have to think, will it still work in a year's time? And it probably won't because things change all the time. So you have to start that work now. And that means spending lots of time in user research and lots of time working with developers. And that can be hard. You know, it's hard work, but that's how you get better design work these days. I think the thing I'd like people to realize is if they're thinking about doing a design system and they're not, 
investing a team behind it that constantly keeps it up to date, constantly seeks feedback and improvement from designers across their organization. They haven't got a design system. They've got a design fossil because at that point in time, it's stuck. And fossils are brittle and dull. And you've got to make sure it lives. You've got to make sure it lives. Make sure your design system is living. Wow. you got to trademark that. The fossil. Yeah, 100%. We've got to get some t-shirts out there. Uh, who knows? Maybe we can get some for the conference. Um, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks, Ben and Tom, for for joining me here today. I'm really excited to learn a lot from you in just a few weeks' time and uh, looking forward to our next chat. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank Great, great to speak to you. Yeah, looking forward to it. Amazing. That was Ben and Tom from Public Digital. They're going to be speaking at DesignConf this year, and you can be there. If you want to grab an in-person ticket, there's only a couple hundred available. Go over to designconf22.joinlearners.com, or there's another way too. You can actually tune in from the comfort of your own living room for free. That's right. We have free remote tickets. Head over to designconf22.joinlearners.com, and we will see you at the beginning of June for a couple of days of wonderful learning. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in.